0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Sounds Japanese-Canadian to Me, Stories from the Stage. I'm your host, Kunji Mark Ikeda, and through this podcast, we are exploring the Japanese-Canadian identity through discussions with dance and theater artists to explore their experiences on stage and how that's reflected on themselves and their personal identities. And today, we are diving into discussion with Julie Tomiko Manning. So, my friends, welcome back to the Japanese-Canadian Theatre of the Mind. Please take your seats and enjoy this conversation with Julie Tomiko Manning. Lights up. My name is
1: Julie Tomiko Manning, and these are my stories from the stage. So, the stage is dark, and you're sitting in your seats, and there's actually no set, and the lights come up, and it's blue, and the snow starts falling. (laughs) I know that it's such a cheesy thing, but I think that every time it happens, as cliche as it is, I just uh, become a child when I'm watching, when I'm sitting in the audience watching something like that. So I just think that that would be Uh, a fantastic way to invite the audience and then i would make them food (laughs) no i actually would love i love the idea of sharing food you know uh like japanese soul food like my comfort food and then just having the smell of uh white japanese rice (laughs) Mm -hmm. from the rice cooker like it's just it just pops off it just lives like ready (laughs) That's You're, what I want. That's what I want.
0: What's what's our meal? What what is your comfort food?
1: Um one of my favorite things is just onigiri. My my mom used to make us onigiri when we would go on road trips. Um and then, you know, when we were younger, we didn't like the umeboshi inside, so she would just make us like the rice ball, like the salted rice ball. <laughs> and then um as I grew older, I I started to really enjoy the taste and um, these days, I I, may, I put cheese inside and I I grill it. And...
0: <laughs> whoa! You know I do that too. I I was passed down one of my dad's favorite midnight snacks is leftover really? rice and cheese. And whoa, <laughs> the best of when cultures meet. And you know there's some cross pollination there with cheese and rice, and it works, folks. It just works.
1: <laughs> cheese and rice. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and then, with you just like you put some show you on it and it's oh like, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, it's amazing, oh, good, yum, oh, enjoy audience uh tell me, <laughs> tell me about the snow, tell me about the wonder of the snow, um, what does that feel like to you?
1: uh, it really is a child it's um the memory of a child it's i mean being a theater artist, uh you know all of the things that happen, you know, like so the the magic of the theater really is like you're watching it technically but whenever something falls from the ceiling it's always a surprise it just always is and it always sort of like gets me it it surprises me as a theater artist and I just uh I don't know I just kind of live in that moment Mm. um yeah I just I love that
0: it's a little bit like we, we've peeked behind the curtain. We, we've seen, you know, we've seen the man behind the curtain and we know the tricks, but there's still such yeah. a delight in that. So you're, you're an actor and you're a playwright and you're an advocate through the arts. As a playwright, have you called for snow in any of your plays yet?
1: No, however, we did have falling rice in the first. <laughs> I did want it to rain rice but it didn't a- I didn't a- end up happening but we did pour rice out of something like rice grains. Mm. And then actually in the second show that I wrote we also had we made food on stage we actually we actually had rice on stage. We made onigiri and then this, in the second iteration of it we no longer made the onigiri because it was quite messy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'll have to write it into the third play. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. Let's uh, tell me about you. The first one was Mixie and the Halfbreeds. Yeah, yeah. What, it was. Uh, what inspired you? What was the 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 initial explosion in you that needed to to come out in this way? Well,
1: uh, I wrote Mixie and the Halfbreeds with Adrian Wong. She's in Banff right now, but I met her in Vancouver. Um, I had gone out there to do a show called Burning Vision by Marie Clements. And um, we kind of, we hit it off. And uh, Adrian is of Chinese and French Canadian descent. Um, and the joke was, and so <laughs> the joke was Mixie and the half was a punk band. Um, and the idea came up because we were all Mixies. Um, in that show. <laughs> and so we performed it there. I think it was in 2009 uh, with New World Theatre. And uh, it was the first show that I'd ever written. The thing that that lasts with me from that performance, from that production, just when the lights would come up, because there were moments where we had these vaudeville, uh, these vaudevillian bits in between the scenes and the lights would come up and we'd talk to the audience. And I remember it making me so emotional to see all of these faces that looked like me in the Mm. audience. And so that was what I took from that experience, that there actually is an audience out there uh, for these stories. You know, my voice is not just I'm not just talking to myself
0: in having that experience uh, we've heard uh, often about representation on stage and so it's really lovely to to hear about your experience of the representation seeing seeing the audience and and, and you mentioned that um in 2009 there weren't a lot of uh, um, the eye wasn't necessarily on that our, our cultural eye wasn't on that how have yeah. you seen that that progress over the years both in terms of representation on stage and and in the audience
1: the representation on stage is where it started but i think that where it really started to 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 not be performative. Uh, so representation was not performative when people started, when it's, there was representation on more levels in the, in the performing world. So it wasn't just the people on stage, it was also the people uh, backstage and the designers and the writers and the directors and the producers. And of course, I mean, we are really just on the edge of that. Um, but there are so many more uh, tellers of writers of those stories, as well as the tellers of those stories, as well as the directors and artistic directors. And that is such an amazing thing to have seen in the last. Tw- how many, ye- oh my God, how many years has it been? <laughs> since 11
0: since the, uh... been 11,
1: years, <laughs> 11 years. So it's not actually been that, that long. Um, but you know, Maybe actually, maybe I performed it earlier than that. Maybe I'm wrong with that year. I can't remember, but it seems like it was longer ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's about the representation on all levels, and so as soon as you start putting these these stories on stage, people like I saw a couple of seasons ago. NAC had I I kind I kind of couldn't believe it. It, there were actually three or four Asian shows in their season, which made me, which kind of blew my mind. Um, it was just a really incredible thing to see all of these white faces in the audience watching an Asian play. Wow. I, I mean, you know, there, there are things about that that are also uh, it's, it's not a problem. It's just that I want to see more uh, diversity in the audience as well. But that was definitely uh uh, an amazing thing to see.
0: It feels like we have, uh, as you say, a lot of progress has has been made over the past eleven or however many years. Um, <laughs> but it feels like we do we've got a ways to go yet. Um, yeah. Um, what's one thing that that you whether it's a, a best practice that you don't see everywhere? What's something that we could be doing as an artistic community to to increase and motivate that that shift of diversity and inclusion?
1: I think that uh, I'm really on the the mentorship train right now. I would like to see um, mid-size, well, actually, I'd like to see all theaters um, be able to find in their budget some money to be able to mentor uh, an artist from any marginalized community and say, here's some money we're going to mentor you for a couple of years for a project to come of fruition. So not just kind of uh, throwing some money somewhere for a year, but actually giving them the support uh, over, uh, over, you know, two or three years because it takes a long time to create. And that's what I would
0: like to see. Mm. I, I love that idea uh, of mentorship. Um, I wouldn't be where I was without some of the the beautiful eloquent and generous mentors who are some mentors that have helped you become who you are as an artist
1: Paula Dankert and Peter Hinton and Emma Tobaldo and Marie Clements so Peter Hinton for people who may not know is um, a longtime director in Canada and he really I th- I think g- gave me the opportunity to become the theater artist that I am. And so when he went went out to Vancouver to, to direct Burning Vision, he brought me along with him. I was the only person who was not a local. And uh, that gave me this incredible opportunity to be able to play um, a Japanese character, which... My God, like it's, it. I I think that a lot of people might not understand um, the amazingness of being able to play someone who has a very similar background to you.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You you spoke about it earlier of being a revelation.
1: It was a revelation. Absolutely.
0: Tell me about uh, what was revelatory about it.
1: I had to dig into different parts of myself. I had to dig into my own experience. Um, and so I, th- I feel like it was even a deeper portrayal of that character because I was, when the character says, I am not Japanese, I dig into my own, I mean, this, this is a lifetime war that I've had inside of myself. Uh, Which I can see you raising yeah, yeah, your you're raising your hand. I yeah, know. I've been there <laughs> I know. <laughs> but you know, it's something. It's tapping into that that thing that lives. It lives right under the surface. Sometimes it lives on top of the surface. Sometimes, you know, it mostly lives right right there at the surface. I am not Japanese. I'm not Japanese. And so to be able to uh, tap into that for a character, um, just Uh, made the experience so authentic for me. And hopefully it made it authentic for the audience. So, yeah, so that was, I think a a really huge revelation for me.
0: Our listeners can't see, but as you, you spoke about being under the skin, you you made a motion that was almost to your shoulder and back. (laughs) Maybe it's day by day, but, but is, is that where you feel the idea of I'm not Japanese living? does that have a physical home?
1: That is a wild question. Um, I didn't know that I was doing that, but that's, but I guess, I mean, that is where, I don't know, I have this. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of an inherited thing because my grandmother used to have um, really tense shoulder muscles. (laughs) And so my grandfather made her this, a tennis ball on a spiral and a handle and she used to like you know give herself her own a massage with you know with that sort of like wow te- tennis ball on the end of a yeah on the end of a <laughs> stick and my other my other side is british and i think that british people are also very you know <laughs> Stiff upper lip. Exactly. So like I come from these two cultures that, that I think are, are smile and get through it, be, you know, mm. stoic. And you know, often I have friends who say, oh my God, you're so happy. You're always so happy. Like you, you're always so joyous. How do you do that? And I, and I go like, oh my God, you guys, like that's a mask. Like most of the time, yes, I am a very happy person, but like, don't be fooled by by that the that constant I don't know I mean I guess it's just I guess it's just something from my childhood that you know you just kind of you just have to smile and get through it Mm. um even though even though inside it's it's all gathering in
0: my shoulders (laughs) (laughs) wow I, I I as well am uh uh, British and Danish on one side and then Japanese on the other.
1: But, uh-huh.
0: but, I mean, I, I used to think that it was because of my training as an actor. It's like I have a I have a great poker face. I can, I can look and feel okay during really hard times. As I, you know, as I continue to experience things, I recognize that that's not necessarily an actor trait. <laughs> like it's absolutely helped by that. But there is a cultural... Feeling of be okay on the outside, yeah. And it's wild to recognize again. Thankfully, beautifully, mercifully, the the actor and the the physical training that I've gone through that we've gone through that lets us recognize that the 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 pain and and the the tension that happens when the internal world isn't allowed to show externally, yeah like that that's a very it's a violent reaction the idea of a, a tornado in a teacup is is to to really hold it down yeah um, and so i i wonder does that help fuel what you do as an artist is there a relationship there mm.
1: i i don't know i mean that's a that's a really interesting question because uh, as an actor i I'm constantly learning. I I'm, I'm never at the peak of my game. So it's, so it's actually a really hard question to answer if, if it, if it fuels it, I mean, if it, maybe, maybe it does fuel it, but one of the things that I had to, that I really had to work on when I was uh, younger was holding that in was not sort of just bursting into tears on stage because I could. Um, Cause I, I also am quite, uh, my emotions are quite accessible. I am a very emotional person. And so it was very easy. It's very easy for me to cry. Um, I cry a lot. And I I think that's a really wonderful thing. I want to sort of encourage people to understand, to know that crying is a really wonderful thing. And it, it doesn't mean that. It's not a weakness at all. Crying in public is not a weakness, and so I want to change that. But a really inter- <laughs> the really interesting thing was that someone once told me that it's more interesting to watch someone on stage tr- not cry uh, rather than to To let it all out, because as an audience member, you get to project onto the character on stage. If they are not sort of, you know, you know, doing the whole waterworks and and
0: just emoting so easily,
1: I don't know. Anyway, uh, that's sort of going off topic.
0: No, it's great. I I mean, uh, my one of my mentors, Denise Clark, who works with Peter Hinton on the regular, yes, talks about um, um, uh, power and reserve, and and so it's a physical idea that translates really well. Uh, The audience can't see me, but I'm extending my arm as far as it'll go. And when you hit as far as it goes, it loses a power. It's like, okay, well, that's your extension. That's it. But if you hold it back and like and like almost 90%, knowing that there's still more you can go, that holds attention and it's really tangible on stage. And it sounds like emotionally that's that's a similar practice. Yeah. Denise Clark, she's great. Mm -hmm. Oh yes. Oh mentors. What would we do without them? I know mentors, <laughs> but,
1: but, the, and the other women, the, uh, those other women, um, uh, uh, Marie Clements, who is, uh, a, a Dene theater creator playwright out in, on the West coast who wrote burning vision and a lot, a lot of other amazing, amazing pieces. She told me once, and I think it was really just in one sentence. I mean, it was a lot of things she said to me, write about your blood and I think that that kind of was a, was a total switch for me because I think that we're all trying to mold ourselves in someone, in someone else's image. Like there is, there's a canon of stuff out there, which is not our canon. Like these are not people that resemble us and they do not come from the same place that we come from. And so I tried for so long to try and act more like a guy to try and act more like a white person to try and think more like my colleagues and I think probably when I was around 35 I realized oh my god my entire career I've been trying to act like a white person like literally so when I would get cast as blah 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 and this was not a this was not a conscious thing but before I would even try and delve into that character I would try and I would try and figure out how to be white first. So it was really it was an act of of self erasure. And I did that for 15 years. The first 15 years of my career I tried to erase myself because in theater school we were taught neutral body and the neutral body was not my body. The neutral body was a white European body. And so when I realized that my neutral body is actually, I'm pointing to myself here, my neutral body, and then I can build on this neutral body because no one is going to see a white person when I walk on stage, (laughs) but they're not going to see what I think they, what I think they think, no. What I think they want to see.
0: Oh my God, it's getting confusing now. I, I've had the the same the same revelation, the same understanding, and and honestly, the Black Lives Matter movement gave me the opportunity to look in and, and recognize how deeply I was trying to be white. Yeah. And and in how many ways and how many situations, professional living, social, you know, my my real social life, my onstage persona, again, as you say, yeah. was looking seeking for that uh, the white male European experience to portray.
1: Absolutely. And it
0: was rewarded. It was it was constantly rewarded that behavior. Yes. And, and ugh, that's such a. Um, alleviating I like to land finally land on those words to say that that's what I've been trying to be doing
1: yeah but I think that a lot of people are really looking at their own internalized racism it's a really huge time right now for a lot of people um, and that's a it's a good mm. thing for people to look in inwards and and we realize how we've been trying to fit into a narrative that that is is not naturally ours either. That this is a completely that's a huge topic, and uh, we can jump into that if you <laughs> want, if, if you want.
0: <laughs> I'd love to ask, what is it like to write about your blood? In the words of Marie Clement, and what has writing about your blood brought you?
1: It was a process to write about my blood. So you know, Marie Clements is saying, write about your blood. And then I was—I went to the uh, uh, National Voice Intensive. That was really where where I kind of broke down and and had that revelation of always that I always try to act white before I looked into the the actual character. Um, and I think that it was because they had assigned me the role of a princess, and I remember going like. I'm. I'm not a princess. I'm not a princess. Yeah. Like I don't look like. I don't look like the you know the thin white blonde uh, ingenue, which was the princess in my mind. Right, that's mm. the princess that Disney mm-hmm. tells us is the princess. And mm. so it really, it really kind of. I had to flip my mind from outside to inside. And from that is is the where that realization
0: came. I just got goosebumps. I honestly just got goosebumps. <laughs> that was great.
1: And then also I started to do this work with Diane Roberts called Arrival's Legacy Work. And they are really about, I I feel like it those workshops are. We are looking into our own ancestors and we're creating, we are creating that narrative uh, mm. ourselves. And so you do this work where you find your ancestors and that work remains with you. I feel more of a direct connection. Um, and they live in my spine with me. So everything that I do, my ancestors are <laughs> there, pointing back there again. Um, Mm. I don't know what kind of artist I am and, and if what I do is successful or even good, I know that as I continue to work, that the work becomes deeper and deeper and becomes more connected to, to, to who I actually am rather than trying to produce somebody else's narrative in a good way, Mm. you know, like writing a five-act play with with the climax and a denouement like I, that doesn't happen checkoff's gun in there somewhere. yeah <laughs> this doesn't work for me
0: <laughs> now can you can you describe a little bit of of what that connection has felt like and what is it what it has brought you to, to connect with those ancestors in your spine
1: i feel like it that having that support Having that sort of ancestral support makes me want to take it outwards to support other communities in a a community organizing and a politically active way. So I think that it actually takes me beyond being an artist, um, and it takes me into who I want to be and the impact that I want to make as a community member. It's funny how what my what your priorities become like right now, my priority is (laughs) like, it's not actually theater right now. Uh, My priority is my family and my friends right now Hmm. um, and not theater. And I think that's okay. Um, I have been really struggling with art for the last six months and where it lives in my life, what role I play in the artistic world. Whereas I know the role that I play within my family and, and that's the thing that, that needs to be fed right now and maintained right now. And the art will come again. I mean, It's always in there. I'm never not going to be an artist. It's always there. And so it will come out whenever. I don't know, in a week, in a month, in a year.
0: (laughs) Wow. I really, um, there was something you said just earlier that was about, it sounded like there was a a twinge of self-doubt as you said, I don't know if I'm a good artist. I don't know if the work is good. But then just hearing this, it, it feels like, it's not so much it isn't self-doubt. It's as you say this awareness and and prioritizing. It's almost I hear you say it it doesn't matter what other people believe the art does because you found this, as you say, this prioritizing of of community, of family, of recognizing yourself as always being an artist. Mm-hmm. That is, I mean, that sounds like the epitome of uh, uh, when people say finding your voice as an artist. Right. Is that what it feels like to you?
1: It's it's funny that little bit of self-doubt there, because maybe I'll talk a little bit about the Tashmi Project here. The Tashmi Project is not just a show. For me, the, and I'm not sure how to get this out. It's almost like I, I need to write a paper on it or I need someone to write a paper on it. An, an academic, not me. I'm not an, an academic, but um, the it's been a process for myself and my community more than it's been a process for the art. As, as far as the art goes, like I look at some of the reviews that we got when we were in Toronto at Factory and some of the reviews were um well i don't it's not my community i'm sure that the community that is it is about will be affected by it so i feel like it was seen as an other you, you know what i mean that the performance was othered in a way so it's for the japanese canadian community and if there is someone who is expecting a like I said before, a five-act structure, they're not going to get it with the Tashmi Project because the Tashmi Project was a community process. So when I say community, um, it, it also feels like, so in, in the sort of colonial narrative, community theater sounds like lesser theater, right? I mean, when people say community theater, they're thinking not professional Theater, not There's definitely
0: theater. a hierarchical thinking about that for sure. Totally,
1: okay. absolutely, and so. But when I say the community process, it the things that you saw on stage was the work of an entire community, and it wasn't just the work that Matt and I did for those many years doing the interviews and the editing and the the, the producing and the administration, and then all of the designers and everything. Of course, all of that stuff. But these are stories that have lasted for years and years and years and years, and they have been building up in our community in the first and second generation and third generation of the Japanese-Canadian community. And there, is a, there was a place for us to make that connection with our elders and, and ask about their not just our history as a collective community, but their memories, the things that impacted them as children. All of that life work of creating those stories is in the Tashmi Project. And if people don't get that, that's okay. That's fine. But the fact that my community gets that on a really deep level for some people on a very healing level, that is the reason why we're doing this. And if if younger generations of Japanese Canadians, understand that this is what their parents and their grandparents and their great grandparents went through this injustice, I think that they have a more solid base of supporting and fighting And standing beside the communities that are going through the same thing today, that are going through the erasure, the violence uh, perpetrated by the rest of society or the government, and they can stand beside them. And because I think that if you understand that you have inherited that that trauma, then you can very easily sort of step into the, the shoes of someone who is facing that today so stand up and speak out and support indigenous communities and black communities and muslim communities and all of those injustices that are happening today anyway my god like the, this is just like <laughs> it's this is it's a huge thing it's a it's a Absolutely. huge thing
0: yeah, the idea that the feeling of injustice tw- towards the Japanese Canadian community lives in our blood, lives in our DNA, <laughs> in a way it goes back to this, this shoulder image that, that we keep returning to, is it's, it's almost a, a call to action to recognize that this isn't the way it has to be. To, to see the progression of Japanese-Canadian going from this subhuman class of enemy aliens to, um, now I'll borrow Hiro Kanagawa's phrase, of being adopted into the club of whiteness. A, that that progression is possible, but B, that progression is orchestrated. Yeah. That when convenient, these biases can be shifted. Again, I'm going back to our shoulders because it's almost a it's a bit of a weight to carry this recognition and this knowledge as we move forward. And and this is what I came to with Sansei the Storyteller, is a very similar thing that I loved how you spoke about being othered. Mm. And 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 the more we as artists, I, I feel as as a community, can can draw into the fact of someone is being othered, and and to, no, 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 you belong with that, you're a part of our community. Um, yeah. That's where I've been finding so much so much fuel, so much drive is that idea of trying to to resist the othering.
1: Yeah. It's a really incredible thing to to see our own privilege, to recognize our own privilege and to be able to speak to uh you know my aunts and my uncles and elders in the community and hear about the things that happened to them as children, and to think about the things that happened to my grandparents who I never was able to speak to about this um, because of many reasons, because I I wasn't interested at that age, and because there was a language barrier, and because they never spoke of it, because it was shameful, because they wanted to leave it behind, because, uh, I mean, there's a multitude of reasons, but and i find myself today yeah sure i grew up with racism for sure absolutely i did i have to look at myself and say and see the privilege that i have and how i can use that through art because that just is my that's just who i am i mean if you are a politician you use it you use your voice as a politician as as an artist, I I want to use my voice as an artist um, mm. to
0: to bring all of this forward. In a way, it's a shame because you would make just a stunning politician. <laughs> <laughs> oh oh, cringy! <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I know it's a world that neither one of us want to get into. But <laughs> no. I mean, it, it, yeah, you would. Um,
1: <laughs> That's hilarious.
0: Ditto. Thank (laughs) you. Thank you, and not a chance. Uh, (laughs) I actually,
1: I actually think that if artists had, if there were more, if more artists were politicians, or if more politicians were artists, huh?
0: I mean, I don't know. I've got a show. uh, It's a dance clown show called "Know the Rules, Win the Game," and it's all about politicians using artistic tricks to to play these long game narratives in order to to plant seeds. Oh. Um,
1: I don't know I mean, if that's, I don't know if that's jerky or not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just the rules, rules the game. That's what we're talking <laughs> about here. Um, what I, what I'd like to, just a quick insert here to say that my conversation with Julie took a lot of beautiful yeah. turns and twists. And soon we found our way on universal specificity, which led us to speak about her new show <laughs> are, are you looking into universal specificity in in your new work in <laughs> uh, mizu shobai
1: i mean mizu shobai is very specific because i uh, i'm writing it from an interview from a, a, like three different cds of interviews if people don't know what a CD is, it's a
0: compact disc. <laughs> it's
1: something that we used to use in the '90s and '80s. It and
0: wasn't so, in, the, in the '80s, was it?
1: No, no. The, maybe you're the, right. Maybe the it's '90s an tape, and the, the tape early cassette.
0: <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> tape cassette in the '80s.
1: Tape cassette in the '80s.
0: Eight um, a- track in the '70s.
1: A- <laughs> Oh my god i was wondering how far you're gonna go back
0: <laughs> i mean we can go reel to reel phonograph.
1: Uh. <laughs> i was just gonna say that oh, my grandfather used to have a reel to reel in the basement whoa <laughs> um but um yeah so it mm. so it's not a not verbatim the way that the tashme project was but it is fiction based on her interviews so the facts are all wow. the same yeah the facts are the facts the voice that I have created for her is inspired by her voice hmm. and, the, and the things that she went through. Hmm. So it's, uh, so we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. That's been- <laughs>
0: <laughs> we could get into this gesture in a bit. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, full disclosure, I'm writing a piece that's similar. Um, <gasps> that is, is based in fact, it came from Roy Ito's uh, Stories of My People. And uh, I'm, I'm fictionalizing this, this event, this very real event that has been only told but from one side so far.
1: What event?
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> it is uh, um, the, the murder in the early 1930s that was uh, done by Dr. Sakurada, who w- was connected to over 20 murders, that he was the beneficiary of life insurance. Oh and, my God. And so this this true crime murder has been looked at through the uh, the police files uh, a few times, and the Canadian Sherlock Holmes was was on the case in real life, um, and caught this evil doctor. Um,
1: however, no. I mean, and,
0: yeah, yeah, right. And and so my fictionalized voice is coming in and saying that uh, part of the facts is they they have a little itinerary of what was sent back to dr sakurata's wife but no money was ever transferred there's no record of any money um and so this is this is uh, at the start of the depression so i mean that's my fictional hypothesis of where did that money actually go
1: okay so this is so okay so the woman that i'm writing about like she they probably knew each other you know what i mean like (laughs) like she owned a Mm -hmm. brothel Mm -hmm. on Hastings in the 30s and 40s you know she was she was an underground businesswoman she was uh, she was this really incredible woman which brings me to how I really kind of want to break the image of like so the the model minority myth and uh, this is a character who really broke these expectations, but also these, you know, these myths that this is how Japanese women were, because she's not at all like that. So I just, I think that that's a really interesting thing. And And I think that that's something that it feels like a lot of Asian artists are working towards taking that, that myth and just throwing it out the window and kind of throwing it yeah throwing it back in people's faces Um, because I think that that myth has really allowed the Asian community to not be implicated to not implicate themselves in the oppression of of other communities because because you know there's a there's a desire to be you know white i mean whiteness is the is the the end
0: goal yeah i'd never put that into words or conscious thoughts but but the like the piece is absolutely playing play on the the racism and as you say throw it back in the faces of the oppressors into into this counterculture and 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 succeeding through their perception of yeah
1: The this woman, Kyoko Tanaka Goto, is like she says in her interview, she's like, We used to dress up the girls as geishas because that's what you know, nobody knew that they weren't actually real geishas. That sort of myth, that exotification of of the Asian woman. So she used that uh manipulation of her clients.
0: <laughs> Very cool. It feels like uh <laughs> I mean it's wild that both I mean Sansei and Tashmi could be presented side by side. I and, know. Uh, uh maybe somewhere five years down the road. Um these two. You know, yes, evolve. totally. We'll do will do a double bill. Yeah, a double double bill. A double double bill. <laughs> why don't we why don't we finish off with some some good classic um some good classic thoughts here? What what would you today, Julie Tamiko Manning? What would you say to a younger version of yourself? What advice would you give yourself as as a like a 10-year-old kid that that would really resonate and and grow?
1: This is funny because when you sent me the outline beforehand, these were the only questions that I actually had to write down <gasps> some kind of answer. Oh. Cause, I, Cause I was like, oh, the other stuff we can just jam on. But Did you write a ones... little,
0: like, love letter to your younger self? <gasps> no, it was <laughs> Julie, that would be amazing. I'm going to gonna add in a flourish of music here as we sit down <laughs> to listen to a love letter to Julie's younger self.
1: Kind of like a, a love <laughs> sentence, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I think what I want to say is don't feel bad about the things that you are good at. And the things that you are not good at.
0: Hmm. Don't feel bad about the things you are good at or the things you are not good at.
1: Yeah. I'm, and I could, I could leave it like that. <laughs> or I could explain it. I'm not sure which one's better.
0: <laughs> I mean, we're going back to the the uh, power and reserve. Maybe that's that's enough to let, I mean, 10-year-old Julie and and our friends in the audience here consider. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Don't feel bad about the things you're good at and the things you're not good at. Mm -hmm. That's lovely.
1: It'll it'll hit you in a week. You'll get You'll be like, oh, that's what she meant.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, I mean, things are popping already. Things are Coming up, bubbling up, back in my spine. Um, <laughs> back there. Yeah, back there. Um, okay, uh, let's fa- Okay, can we fast forward uh, this yeah. love letter to yourself as a young emerging artist? Oh yeah. What would you say to you to that version of yourself?
1: That one was easier because I I I want to encourage the twenty year old version of myself to fail and to risk and that's it just fail and risk when you're young when you're 20 start early start failing early
0: hmm.
1: i only figured that out like probably you know in my 30s in my mid mid to
0: late 30s so would you say you were failing at failing oh
1: Oh God. That's, that's funny. You know what? Some days I totally fail at failing. Like Mm. I would say the majority of the time I fail at failing because that's one of those things in me that I still, I still, I still always want to be perfect. Uh, Like that's what took me so long to, to start doing anything to start Mm. writing anything was I was like, I I'm not going to put it out there if it's not perfect, because I don't want to be seen to fail because mm. um, I'm a woman and because I'm an artist of color. And so both of the, so if I fail, then who's going to give me a chance mm. to fail again?
0: And I, f- I felt similar that if I fail as an artist of color, what will that say about other younger artists of color? Mm-hmm. What will then be placed on them with this acknowledgement that I have not really done it wrong?
1: Yeah. I just want to see those emerging artists uh, to just fail and fail and fail <laughs> and do it all mm. the time because the more you do it, like the more you're going to learn from it and the more you are going to find your voice and you're going to find your own body and, and hopefully you never find yourself as an artist Hopefully you're always searching. You always have that like really deep floor of, of searching for your voice. Yeah, the earlier you fail, maybe the earlier you'll find, you'll at least find some sort of authenticity there.
0: Hmm. And what would you say to, to emerging artists who are past their 20s?
1: Oh, yeah, I wrote that one down too. <laughs>
0: Did you honestly? <laughs> I didn't even send you that one and you, oh... You really didn't I think, want to fail, I think you, you, you no, did. <laughs> I just wanted to, with that question, wanted to invite the idea that, that I mean, failure can always be something super valuable.
1: Oh my God. Learn Failing is so valuable. Oh yeah. Failing is so valuable. Um, what I would, my advice for the next generation would, um, would be to not pretend to be anyone else mm. but yourself. You know how mm-hmm. how we we were speaking about putting on putting on a white persona before we even started to to dig into the into the depths of the character. Mm. I realized that I'd been ripping off the audience that came to see me for fifteen years. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no refunds.
1: <laughs> no refunds. Too late now. It's too late. That money has been spent. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, to, to, you know, to be, to continue to be inspired by and learn about and be, um, grateful to the people who went before you, mm. but don't try and emulate them. Be yourself.
0: Okay. Well, well, now I want to like throw you a curveball here.
1: Um, <laughs> no, no, I didn't write a curveball down. I
0: know. I was hoping, I was banking on that. Uh, what does Julie Tamiko Manning right now? Want to say to herself as 60, a seven year old, what, adv- what advice would this version give to an older version, a version that's yet to come?
1: Oh my God. <laughs> oh. Th- well, that's weird. That's, that's a crazy curveball. You're asking me to look into the future.
0: Not to look into the future. To offer something to you so I mean you can listen to this podcast in in 20 years
1: um that everything you built you built right on time
0: <laughs> everything you built you built right on time
1: yeah I guess I guess you know if <laughs> if I weren't being so like fancy with words I'd just say don't like don't regret anything hmm. but I don't really have any gr- I don't have any regrets anyway
0: You got your failures and your failure to failures.
1: My failures and my failures to (laughs) failure.
0: But you built it at the right time. Yeah. I love that. That's great.
1: Oh, thank God.
0: (laughs) You did it. You didn't fail. Um, That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Julie. Um, This has been a really lovely, fruitful conversation.
1: Thank you, Kunji. I enjoyed it so
0: much. I'm glad. Me too. Me too. Thank you so much for tuning in and spending some time with us here at Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me, Stories from the Stage. Another huge thanks to Julie Tomiko Manning for these ideas and these thoughts. For more information on Julie, you can check out thetashmeproject.com. Julie's creative partner for The Tashmi Project is Matt Miwa, who we'll be hearing from here on the podcast in a few episodes. Another big thanks to the Nikkei National Museum and Cultural Center. If you're enjoying the episodes, please like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Once again, my name is Kunji Ikeda, and it's an honor to host Sounds Japanese-Canadian to Me, Stories from the Stage.